This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome movie lovers back for another Anatomy of Movie. Today we're discussing I Love Dogs. No, I do really love dogs. However, we are talking I Love Dogs by Wes Anderson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hopefully you enjoyed that play on words as we get into this movie, the latest from Wes Anderson. But before we get into things, allow me to introduce Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. What's happening? A lot. And I'm Phil Svitek. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. If you are just joining us for the first time, well, welcome to the show. If you're returning, welcome back. A couple of things administratively that we should talk about just to get them out of the way, set the tone. Number one, we assume that you've seen the movie, so we are spoiler-filled. So if you haven't, go see it. If you don't care about spoilers, well, hey, that's on you. Secondly, we've also compiled our information, our notes, and so forth, conveniently for you to check out in the description box. It's a PDF link. You just click that, and it'll bring it up for you to follow along for those that want it. And uh, last but not least, we invite you to participate through the comments, through social media interaction, all that stuff. Let us know what you guys thought of the movie. Uh, especially one like this. It's sort of a heady movie, if you will talk about it. Lots of stuff to look forward to. If you're joining us for the very first time, you know, we'll break down everything. We'll talk about is it Asian appropriation? We'll talk about the influences. We'll talk about the story. We'll talk about box office and everything in between from the start of production to the end where it stands in terms of Wes Anderson's legacy. Before we really dive into all that, first, we've got to let the people know our overall thoughts. Marissa, starting with you. Uh, okay, so I'll preface, I'm not a Wes Anderson fan. It took me until last night to watch this film. Not to put a timestamp on our show. But, uh, so, like, this wasn't a movie I was rushing to go see. I love dogs as well. Um, and I'm not the biggest fan of stop motion, but I do appreciate the art. Because it is a dying art, and not, all, not too many people do it anymore. Except for the, the Leica um, film production. So, like, and I appreciate that. Uh, I liked this, I liked the story of this film, even though it was very, very predictable. Um, I like the characters, the writing. It, there was a couple of moments where I chuckled. This was a, I liked this film, this Wes Anderson film, more than all the other ones of his I've seen, and I have seen a lot. Um, so he's he's mostly missed with me. But overall, I did fairly enjoy the entirety of this film. Dimitri? I really like this movie a lot. I think it's a smart, intelligent, fun movie. It has heart. It's topical. It's relevant. You can... Uh, it, it really, again, it's the power of cinema for me and, and the power of animation. There are certain stories you just can't tell in live action. Uh, and this movie is so... Uh, it's so based in its history of animation and stop motion. And it, much like, you know, where we talked about movies like Coco, these, like animation just opens up a world 
that, you know, live action, even today, as well as CG is, and some people argue that a lot of the movies that are quote-unquote live action are technically animation. Uh, but this Jungle movie... Book. Jungle Book. Jungle <laughs> Book. So, but I don't think that this movie... Part of the movie, for at least in my opinion, why this movie succeeds is the world that it creates within this animated stop motion world, and that is like again, it's it's it gives you a different viewpoint, it gives you a different look, uh, which I really appreciate. I mean, animation has been around like forever, so so and many of you uh, who watch us, uh, I'm sure there's a faction who probably have watched anime before, so you all know this that animation doesn't necessarily need to be made for families and the kitties. This movie isn't for the kitties. Uh, I think it's a little bit, as you said, heady. Uh, in some it's for parts. the dogs. It's for the. Do- <laughs> I don't say it's for the dogs either because that could be said as a criticism. But uh, I think it's a doggone movie, a <laughs> doggone good movie, and uh, and and again, it just uh, opens up. It offers a, a great variety for moviegoers, and I think as a Wes Anderson film, it has his directorial tropes all over it, and. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and as I was reading uh, the production notes, and thank you, Fox Searchlight, for making perhaps some of the most detailed production notes that I have ever read. Uh, the work put into this movie uh, is is staggering, and it, at the very least, I hope it does not get lost in the shuffle. Uh, it should be nominated for you know get a best animation nod, and unless there is a Coco ish type of movie that comes out between now and the holidays it could at least as of today uh it could have a shot but at the very least there should be an academy award nomination for animated picture i think yeah i don't i don't disagree i enjoyed this movie enough um i thought it's when you talk about the tropes of wes anderson he certainly had that where it's it combined a lot of film elements as far as rack focuses and, and various things of that nature, and he doesn't move his camera much. It's always just deliberate pans and tilts, which I appreciate. Uh, and what really highlighted because of that was the comedy of it all. Uh, and, and I appreciated when you talk about the world building, he took a big risk as far as American audiences, as far as I was concerned, uh, with having it be multilingual and, and not um, not caring, but yet still having an interpreter during the the action stuff that we needed to know, and um, I appreciated the the way he sort of layered it. And I guess all dogs just talk English, so good Kudos <laughs> for me. Uh, so overall, I, I I rather enjoyed it, and uh, I, I appreciate that I got to see it. I saw it when it was still in limited release. Now. Course, one of the reasons we're talking about it now is it's in wide release, so hopefully you have had a chance to see it as well. Um, so let's let's start going into it, right? Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox was his first animated, and then in about 2015, he started talking about okay, well, I want to I want to do a follow up to that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and do something in that space, and this is what he sort of come up with. Um, he has a love of I I. There's people who love stop stop motion and people who dislike it. It's always odd to me the people that dislike it. I, I'm a big fan of it, uh, whether it's you know some of the more t- like the Tim Burton produced stuff, Nightmare Before Christmas and all that. But in this one in particular, like the the old Holiday Rudolph and so forth, I, I I like that stuff. What about you guys? 
And the re- by the way, th- for those of you wondering, I bring that up because it's a direct influence for him. Right. I mean, I, I appreciate stop animation. For me, as a viewer, I'd rather go because it's kind of like that middle ground of real and animation. And for me, as a viewer, I like to actually get engaged with my characters in, in the storyline. And I had a hard time emoting um, with these characters, even though there were, quote-unquote, emotional moments in the, in this movie. And you saw the dogs crying, you saw the humans crying. But I, as a viewer, couldn't like get to that level of emotional connection. And I think it's because... It because it looks so fake on screen that I can't connect with it. Um, but that's my personal opinion. I appreciate the art, and it takes so much time and so such creativity and patience and diligence working through it. And I'm like, I appreciate it. Um, I'd rather go full human or full animation. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm a, I've been a huge fan of stop motion animation since a kid. Um, watching the original King Kong, watching anything from Ray Harryhausen, without even knowing what stop animation was, watching David and Goliath on Sunday mornings, uh, and then, as you said, all of those Rankin and Bass Christmas special from Rudolph uh, to Fro- yeah, not Frosty the Snowman to um, it was the uh, they had like a ton of them. Oh, oh, um, Year Without a Santa Claus, Santa Claus is coming yeah. to town. Those are all stop motion animation. Island Misfits. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and so, and then learning how it was used as a special effect, and then you know growing up, uh, uh, art, music artists like Peter Gabriel used stop motion animation. Sledgehammer, his video, uh, got a huge notice for using a lot of stop motion animation. But it was truly, at least in, in my humble opinion, it was Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, that really brought it back into uh, the forefront for, for movie making and animation again. I mean, he crafted basically a musical and Henry Selick's work with stop motion animation and, and it made it he made it big again and grand and there was James and the Giant Peach so this is basically a thumbnail sketch I understand but no I love it and I, I really enjoy that process and what Leica has done too again it just goes back we talk about animation and how great storytelling can come from it uh, and I really uh, I enjoy the world like it didn't watching Isle of Dogs I didn't have that emotional distance because this was in, in stop uh, or yeah stop motion animation I think that for me it's, it's it really comes down to story character um, you know and the animation is a tool and how those characters are drawn and how they're voiced. And to me, that's what I got into. So regardless if it's stop-motion animation or if it's a movie like Coco uh, or even an Avatar. So, but but stop-motion has been around since the ages, and it's only been more and more perfected. Um, and uh, I just love it as a, as a tool, as a special effect, and in Isle of Dogs. Well, what I appreciate, it was, you know, when you talk about the advances of it, in essence, he could have made a very advanced, great-looking stop-motion picture, but he deliberately chose sort of this roughness to it. One of the things I, I guess I appreciate about stop-motion is as a kid, there's just this fantasy. You get out your Legos, your army men, and you you can <laughs> sort of move them around and create your own story. And in cool. essence, uh, this is kind of like that kid-like storytelling element 
but but with a greater artifice in terms of the storyteller that's putting this on for you. It's not just made up in your head and goes any which way. And as far as the simplicity of, of this all, I thought he really set up a lot of great things, just even the way the fights themselves worked, where everyone just jumps in, we get a cloud of smoke, and boom, 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 we just see a limb here and there, and we're left wondering, okay, who's who's actually winning this? Right. <laughs> I think you bit your ear off. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what it does, what it what it does come down to is um, the the humor side of all of it. Yeah. yeah, and and I want to bring up something because we we all have talked about right now, like how this one looked a little bit different. So you know, again, just a, a little a little history of like stop motion animation. So so film typically moves at twenty four frames a second. So so the action to be maximal maximally lifelike. Uh, for the puppets, let's call them, um, you have to have 24 distinct postures for every second of screen time, and they call that in, anim- in this type of animation um, on ones. Uh, Anderson, so one position per frame in 24 positions per second. That's a lot of work right there. So some other numbers, but, and- but Anderson, uh, he has an affinity, f- an affinity for, for animation on twos, which gives it that rougher edge look. And and again, it's more uncanny, crunchy. It's imperfect, but I think that's part of what I, what I really enjoyed about watching this movie. So when they got in the scrapes and he used cotton, <laughs> like simple things, like like cotton, we think it's simple. It looks it looks like cotton on screen, but the detail and the work that goes into it it's a lot of time. Considering they were beginning and hashing this out in 2015, you know how much time it takes. We did. Um, the last Leica movie you and I did together. Kubo. No, it wasn't no. Kubo. It was the one. It was the one uh, previous to Kubo um, that we had done. So that you, yeah, I know. I, I know it's crazy. But we talked about how at the Leica Studios, what it took yeah. for them to, to 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 make these movies, and even when we did Nightmare Before Christmas, because that's another stop motion animated movie it, that yeah. we went back to, and. When you look at the production of Nightmare Before Christmas and then you come up to Isle of Dogs and how much work has gone into it, even though camera technology has box gotten trolls. better. That's it. That's that was it. it. Thank you, Box Trolls. That was it. Even though technology is where it is today, yes. it is still painstakingly long to do. Yes, there are certain things that have made it easier, like face. Uh, they can change a face really quickly. But still, it's still painstakingly long to do to set these things up. And that goes from a cinematographer to a production designer. So, you know, there's an art, it's an artistry. Yeah. And like what I appreciate is that we had different characters within these dogs. And with the human, because we have like so many facial expressions slash micro facial right. expressions, there's hundreds upon hundreds of different faces <laughs> you can use. And we've talked about movies that have just like, a thousand heads just for one character um and what i liked about the dog is that because there are so many i think like you can hide facial expressions within like the fur on them so it's like maybe i don't know all the production but you do yeah um but uh, there were it seemed like there were less facial expressions with these dogs but different looks 
because we had more characters. Yeah, and again, so so a two-year journey, right, of production. So it involved more than 670 crew, including more than 70 manning the puppet department and another 38 in the animation department. Mm-hmm. But the stop motion is, is, is of course, the most time-consuming and labor-intensive uh, of all cinematic forms. That's what we were just saying. So it had to be stitched out of 130,000 stills. 130,000 stills to create the illusion of this immersive action. So, yes, and even though they had this process streamlined, uh, they used a Canon IDX digital camera and the software known as Dragon Frame. And I'm not sure if we talked about Dragon Frame on Box Box Trolls, but I know that they invented a new kind of stop motion animation and they could instantly preview the frames, but it... In, it's the kind of thing that tests the endurance of even the most <laughs> focused filmmaker. Uh, and then, we, you know, Henry Selick talks about that a lot, um, you know, as well. Uh, so well, it's an artistry that, you, that you sh- I think we should appreciate. Yeah, you know, absolutely. For getting done. Well, let, let's take a step back um, in all of this. And we'll, we'll certainly talk sort of the process. But as far I want, I want to talk story, because as far as that. You know, one one of the things that came out of it by being so subdued in terms of the way it was, sh- the, the things that you mentioned, is the fact that it relies on performance and the characters. It really, by the more things you pare down, the stronger those have to be, in my opinion. And I thought that worked. Now, as far as him, uh, Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola, they they had this inkling of an idea of what if we just had dogs and they were on a garbage dump and what would that look like and it's slowly kind of meshed into this. Um, Akira Kurosawa, a major influence on this particular movie for them, at least uh, Anderson, uh, you know, huge admirer of him. Yeah. Yeah, Kurosawa's a huge uh, uh, influence, his movies. And it is really interesting in reading about it, too, that Kurosawa worked in many genre of film. It's, it's fascinating because we have some directors today, a uh, particular director that we've talked about a lot, like Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. who's worked in many genres of film. I'm not just singling him out. I know that Martin Scorsese has as well. Um, but it's interesting that they looked at his whole library, Kurosawa being, to, to, to help fuse this movie together. And again, it you know it helps when your buddies like Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman uh, and this Kenichi Nomura. They actually set up. Uh, they had like a writers' room, which is becoming. It's very common on television. Uh, it was back in the day. It's coming back now in writers' rooms, but it's starting. We're, we're talking about it in productions of movies as well, mm-hmm. where they have people animation in particular. Yeah, because yeah. it's one of those when it comes to animation and when we talk about that painstaking process, the last thing you want to be like, you know what? Let's let's revise this entire scene. Right, right. Rewrite. You but, don't want to do that. But it's happening with. I hate to use the F word, but franchise movies because they're mapping things out. So there are some writer's rooms are somewhat coming back. But this is a writer's room for one movie where they're just bouncing ideas off of off of one another. And they go, well, hey, uh, well, why don't we do this? And well, how about this line of dialogue? And hence, this is how the the, the writing on this. It's, It's a great collaborative. Again, we always talk about the collaborative work that goes into a movie. 
uh, this was extremely collaborative as far as the writing went, that these people, and I think it helps that they know one another and they're friends. They've worked before They've together. They've worked yeah. before. So um, that to me is like really, uh, that that's really cool that they were able to write this out and still make changes before setting things to film. Right. I mean, I, I like the story, and I said it at the top. It did seem a bit predictable because it hit emotional beats that you're expecting throughout the film. And I, I don't know if I liked it or disliked it because I could basically call every action that was about to to happen. I didn't mind it, though, um, but because I did like the story. I liked the dogs, and I liked the eventual companionships and the, the different relationships that you see from, you know, person to person or dog to person or dog right. to dog. You know, the, there were a lot of different elements of the story that I enjoy. And there is, like, an adventure kind of storyline, a through-line journey. You're seeing them go from one place to another, and those are always fun to watch as well. Yeah, and, and I think, like, the main thing that the universal thing is child looking for his pet. Child loses pet. Child goes on this adventure to find pet. This has been done in Lassie movies, Benji movies. Uh, Rinton <laughs> well, goes off on his own adventures. Homeward Bound. But right, but these are a you know, but there's something that everybody you know on G-rated movies can can you know. Can sort of kind of pinpoint as the universal as a universal theme. All the heady stuff you can pick out, but the one universal theme is boy trying to find his pet. You know, yeah, I mean it's, it's part of that. I, I look at the greater stuff in, in, in it as well. When you you know one of the things that I think when you talk about predictability, the the notion that seems to get brought up at least by us is okay. Well, does that mean the movie's any less for it? And, you know, I I would argue that there's definitely movies, like, in a murder mystery, you don't want that to be the case. But in something like this, it's no different to me than re-watching your favorite movie. There's, there's you know, you can go through that dramatic irony, and what makes it beautiful is the way it's told, and, and it weaves it in and out, and those various moments. Because of the cast of characters, I mean, uh, I, we could certainly ask who our favorite character was. Um, for me, I, I liked the turn of Chief in particular, where he was so hard-nosed and didn't care about anyone else and then made that turn of, okay, I'm in. So it's, it, it was well-told throughout and well-meshed, and uh, every dog and even every character, that human or otherwise, was so fully fleshed out that that's what made it enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we're going with favorite characters, of course, I, I liked Chief because you knew that he was the most resistant and reluctant at the beginning. So he was going to have mm. the biggest arc in the end. And his arc was actually very satisfying. So, like, I yeah. liked his character. But I also loved, I forget which one, um, the one that had all the rumors. It's like, can you, you know about that. Oh, rumor. Duke. Yeah, Duke. Duke. Oh, oh, Duke Jeff was Goldblum. Fun. Yes. Duke was funny because I'm, as an audience member, I'm thinking, it's like, how the heck do you know this when you're standing on an island? Who's talking? Like, all these dogs. And, but you always have that one person who like has the inside information. Yeah. And I found it was a funny running joke throughout the movie that never got old. No, no, and 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 again, I think the voice talent in this movie again, Wes Anderson favorites. They're all very good actors in their own right, but lending their voices to this, I thought Brian Cranston 
uh, was was great. I loved hearing Jeff Goldblum, uh, and, and as Duke, you're right. He was he was just perfect for that kind of rumor. Uh, you know, he's 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 the Yenta of the group. Yeah. But the great <laughs> so thing about like, the rumors, it was like all the rumors and the information we were learning from the rumors were eventually true, and right. it actually added to the story and progressed things forward. And because they were mostly facts, right. and then would catch up the audience, like, oh yeah, that is happening, you know, or right. that is true, so we can actually believe Duke because he added things to right. the to the story. Well, what, what did, I appreciate there, there was multiple levels like that uh, where I'm getting it in, in particular. Like there's a mysticism. We have to go see the Oracle as if we're almost like in the Matrix. We have to go see the Oracle, <laughs> the all-knowing, all-seeing. And lo and behold, it's Tilda Swinton who ironically was the all-knowing in uh, Doctor Strange. Right. Nonetheless, when yes, the name is Oracle, but it's simply because it learned to watch TV. Right. <laughs> and so, what I appreciate it, when I talk about the mysticism, you know, just through the eyes of a dog, just this ability to have wonder at the world in ways that when human beings first came to this earth, like, ooh, what is fire? Type of thing. Right. I, I did like the the Oracle too because you know they called it visions and we as human beings are like oh yeah it's just TV right. but she can interpret the TV right. so it made her more knowing of it, uh, of the of the world she yeah. she was more worldly than everybody else because she understood more yeah. stuff. Yep, and she know how to watch funny. TV like funny. so many people do. <laughs> she she knew the news like she was she was up to date with everything that was happening. So, well, it's funny because to hear Jeff Goldblum talk about, uh, he felt like he had this kinship with Duke, and and it's it, I, it in typical Jeff Goldblum fashion, the chatty curious hound who has his ear to the ground for the latest rumors. Uh, Goldblum says, "I believe Duke in this time of great social crisis in the dog world." Just wants what he's always wanted, a balanced diet, regular grooming, and his annual physical checkup, which are roughly the same things that I myself require. <laughs> and that's what he went into. And, and, he, and he looked at this as not just doing a voice, uh, not just doing a reading, but he actually, like, I, he felt it was acting to him. Uh, and I, I think everybody did, and everybody gave whether it's subdued or, or they lent their voice and, and we, we've talked about this many times in animation how how important it is to find the right actor and they don't always have to be stars or people that we know and that's the other thing um even though th- th- this has a lot of stars they didn't over they didn't overshadow the context of this movie um so it wasn't like oh this is Jeff Goldblum, that's all I thought about was Jeff Goldblum. You said Duke. We weren't even talking about who no. voiced Duke. And that, I think, to me, is is the magic of fantastic animation. We talked about a Coco. We found a kid oh, found a nobody kid. knew, right? And, well, I think and they had to change his voice, too, because yes. he matured over the years. <laughs> right. I think in this case, it's for me, a lot of studios can try to force that. Whereas this, even though they are yeah. big-name talents... Right. They're all friends with each other. So it, 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 I don't know. There's just something about it where, to me, you don't necessarily go see a Wes Anderson movie unless you're somewhat of a fan or you're kind of curious to get into, oh, I want to be a Wes Anderson fan and I've never seen his movie. Something along those lines or somewhere in between. True. And But all of, the, all of these actors and actresses, they're in that world. They're all friends and they, they like playing with each other, which, which I think 
you know, if you're really breaking it down, there's something to be appreciated about just that fact rather than like, oh, let me get Brian Cranston because he's red hot right now. Right. Or right. whoever. Yeah, and I appreciate Wes Anderson. We've covered a lot of his films. He yeah. always generally works with his friends and the same people, his same group. And, you know, and we talked about other directors and actors who do the same thing. Like oh. Adam Sandler always works with the same group um, for all of his films. But because, you know, there's already a working relationship. And, like, they, they make fun stuff together. And it's not just as creators, but just, like, creative, collaborative people just working on another project absolutely and the the chemistry you know translates to the screen yeah i I agreed and and it's a collaborative way in both in front and behind the camera too so we talked about we we talk about this a lot where where a director producer will work with the same folks again just bringing up steven spielberg using Yanis kaminsky as his cinematographer michael khan michael khan as an editor and now mark rylance seems to be one of his muses and he's put a lot of uh, him in, in his movies he's used tom hanks a lot so he you know all these people and i think it lends to the director knowing the strengths of said talent yep. and going mm-hmm. if i'm gonna go into this very highly detailed production. I should surround myself with people who I can communicate with rather easily, who get me, I get them. That part should be easy. And everything else could be painstaking, but I got to make something easy for myself. So I'm going to bring in Bruce Willis. I'm going to bring in Jason Schwartzman. Uh, So... Uh, Let's let's talk about the... Since you guys identify the crux of the story as... You know, Atari and his love for spot spots. Uh, spots. Let's let's talk about that and as a jumping off point, really into the story because that that is central to it. Um, just as a character, you know that emotion. What were you, uh, how did you guys feel about Atari and what were you drawn to? I liked Atari because he was innocent. You know, he he was that innocent kid that uh, is automatically you know endearing to watch. And even though he was from a corrupt family, it's like you can't judge him from his background or the people that he grew up with um, because he was just an innocent kid looking for his dog. It was more not for the political aspect behind it. It was just, you know, that love of your pet. And I I enjoyed that because we even saw, you know, even with the flashbacks with, with Spots, like how much Spots actually liked him, you know, that reciprocal type of emotion so it people can relate to that because people love pets people love dogs you mm-hmm. know and dogs obviously love their owners too it, it was a relatable storyline that was easily like as an easy hook sure yeah it's the, it was again it's that universal theme of we all here uh have and deal with pets on a regular and daily, daily basis. basis right so <clears throat> But even before I even had a pet, you know, uh, growing up watching things like Benji, for the love of Benji, things like that, you know, there's, there, there is that bond that, you know, there's a reason why those movies and why Lassie is popular. And you know, there's that, that, that human-to-pet bond. And so the, the interesting thing about Atari here is that this dog was more or less meant to be a surrogate like. He, he was, he, yeah, sir. He was, uh, you know, Atari was hurt. He was in the hospital. They needed somebody to watch over him. Uh, corrupt family, notwithstanding, you know, they buy him a dog. And even the dog was like, at that first, hmm, how am I going to bond or whatever? But they became very close. And you understand that. 
whether you're a pet owner or not, it's easy to understand. Man's best friend. And uh, so going off on this adventure to find spots is very easily, it's a, it's a great thread for, you know, to, to help with crossover audiences because it's a universal theme. It's everything else. And again, it's simple. You know, Marissa, I agree when you're talking about predictability, but it's what it adds on top of that for layers, because this isn't just this could have been a very simple story with with high talented voices. And it's a story that we've seen before. But in Wes Anderson fashion, layer upon layer, I'm going to make this look unique. So I'll add more for the people who will figure that out and, uh, you know, take a universal theme. And just well, that's what I, I, I appreciate it as far as Atari goes. Uh, to me, he just represented this innocence and uh, oftentimes this notion that just being a kid, that you you sort of have the answers as a kid. And as you grow older, that's you sort of go, there's a distance between what you used to know and how you used to do it. And to me, that's really kind of part of the lesson. And even the dogs themselves, the ones that are most sort of... Um, Cynical are the ones that are a little bit older that have that, that have sort of seen this, and in a sense, to me, it's kind of like the the wearing down of age, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. And 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 he he really sparks this rebellion and and changes the way. Yeah, one other movie that you and I covered that that's a dog story is that Megan Levy. Megan Levy, yes, you know, and I again, it's another. It, it's a human. Trying to, to get her get dog, her dog back. back. Uh, so again, it's a very universal uh, theme. It's just the way and how it's done, mm-hmm. and that's a live action. There was um, there was an interesting movie a few years ago. It was called A Dog's Life, maybe. Dog's Purpose. That's the one. Yes, Thank you. A Dog's Purpose. Well. But that sort of kind of does the flip where a dog keeps on getting reincarnated and but ends but up the dog back, is trying to find the owner. Find its owner. Yeah. So uh, I appreciate what Wes Anderson did here because again he sort of flips it on his heels. I also like the fact that we are in this alternative reality. In a different culture. Mm-hmm. I felt this culture come through. And I appreciated this world that was built around that culture. Well, speaking of, I wanted to save it for later, but I guess it does bring a good point and allows an entryway. As far as that culture, uh, it's not a made-up culture. It's Japan. Japan right. Yeah. So as far as that, you know... Uh, I want to get your guys' perspectives about what you've been reading, how you ultimately feel about it so far as um, appropriation or maybe it was mishandled or was it not mishandled, why, or anything of that nature. I don't think it was mishandled, quote unquote. I, I think they definitely touched about something that's universally relatable as well. Um, I definitely think it was a social commentary on what America is also doing <laughs> Absolutely. Um, with like a, you could say tyrannical dictator, but it, it had those same themes of like someone's taking over and no one can tell him no or tell whoever no. And like you have to follow the orders and go with it. Um, like there's a lot of universal things. This is not just America. It's all over the world, not just Japan either. So I think it was definitely a social commentary on what's happening. Oh, couldn't agree with you more on that. But I also think that I had great high respect for, for the culture. 
as well. I really do. From the music interludes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I felt that there was was respect for the artistry, which is shown in the animation. Uh, And I felt that there was high respect. There There was nothing that was stereotypical that we've seen that that it could have gone and i did feel that there was a there was a fine respect for the for, for the culture regardless of and you're right thematically we do have this tyrant this dictator this dog flu thing getting rid of all dogs yeah, i'm i don't believe that japan wants to get rid of all dogs but it was more than that. There was a culture that there that we did, and it was artistry. Uh, it was it was. That's why I really liked this. I felt like I was actually somewhere else, maybe not in Japan, but in this Japan-like world. See, it's tough for me because, I, yeah, you know, number one, I don't represent that culture, and so I can't see it a hundred percent from that perspective. But I can understand everyone's perspective about it. The fact that one of the ways they they off somebody is okay let's make sushi first and just the way so we, you know i appreciate the way it was done but nonetheless just the the sheer presentation of it all was somewhat stereotypical in that sense hmm. and uh you know the biggest complaint that i've seen is is as far as the little girl the um the one who's there uh what do they call it as an exchange student She's white, and people are saying, "Oh, here's another white savior." And I, where where it gets interesting for me, Marissa, is because I do believe you're right as far as there's so much here in terms of what's going on politically in terms of America. Mm-hmm. You can talk about deportation, not of dogs, but yeah. <laughs> of human beings and so forth. And it's a you can call it a cautionary tale or we're in it tale, whatever you want to talk, call it. But but. You know, to to a degree, some of the criticism I've heard is if that's the story that you're going to make, just make, make it about America or something like that. But wouldn't it make – I mean, I guess you're a foreign exchange student. You could be from anywhere. But it didn't bother me that she came from the States if there's an exchange going on. Uh, Greta Gerwig, who voiced Tracy, I thought was really good. And she was working for this Daily Manifesto. And, you know, I don't think that – she was coming down to this. The, she was trying to unravel the quote unquote mystery. What's going on here? I didn't find it. Uh, I didn't find it as being whitewashing. Uh, you know, no, it's all. not whitewashing. But, it's it, it's the it's the white savior. It, but, and I didn't find her to necessarily. It was a collaborative savior. I didn't find that she was the only one. I mean, Atari had. He had some. You know, he had some purpose in this movie as well as well as his dogs. Right, um, and and all the other characters, I, yeah, I didn't find her to just be the sole white savior of culture and what's going on in this. She was um, Tracy Walker. Yeah, she, Tracy was bringing this to light, but I didn't find her to be the white savior to this this world. I felt it was more collaborative that no, she helped I mean, push it along she didn't bother me whatsoever like the fact that she was just american alone i believe because the the dogs are speaking english so <laughs> we just bring another character that also speaks english that can also help propel propel the story forward and, and she talked to to the scientist at the end to help get the cure back like she was the person who was taking action don't call it a savior just a person who's moving the plot forward and mm-hmm. the fact that she's american 
like it, whatever, we can understand her language. And America, dogs are revered here. Like, we love dogs. So it was just another character who could also fight for the dog's side. So I didn't mind it whatsoever. Yeah, well, I'm going to continue representing the other side. Simply because, no, you make a movie like Blockers, it's a fun movie, great, you can enjoy it, but you don't get to these levels. Like, Wes Anderson, you know, there's a lot of layers to it all. And, you know, uh, what... Here's the thing, whether he meant to or not, whether it's a, you could say that, okay, unconsciously his conditioning has lent him to do this. And you look at that as, okay, you, when you say she could have been from anywhere, well, why couldn't she have been from anywhere? Because you could argue the fact of, well, the fact that she's American, Americans need to save everybody else. And that's just, again, this sort of limiting belief, this this unconscious belief of that. And further evidenced into this movie. Uh, so again, it's tough for me. I, I I enjoyed the movie. I don't know where I land on it, but I do see the other side, and I don't want to just toss it aside for, for because I don't I don't see it. You know. Well, I, I, yeah, no, I listen. I, it's it's you bring up a, an interesting point. It didn't. I didn't when I was watching the movie. I, I didn't feel as if it was uh, Whitey coming into town to save everybody. I, I really did feel that she was bringing things to, you know, to the forefront and trying to get the word out while being suppressed by people who are supposed to be much smarter than her. But yet when she finally hooks up in a tar with Atari, um, and then with our interpreters and our Greek core, so to speak. You know, I really found that at the end of the day, it was Atari who saved the day. Um, so, but a key thing about Tracy, she was actually the most challenging puppet of them all, meaning they she sports exactly 320 freckles, each which travels whenever she smiles. <laughs> so the team designated a key freckle around which all the other freckles would move in an established pattern. 320 freckles. That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I would hate slash love to be in that meeting. Like, does she have to have freckles? Does she have to have 320 of them? <laughs> Can't we just make it a mole? <laughs> Season move. Yeah. Moving around like, you know, uh, <laughs> like Robin Hood. Faces they had to, like, the just men in for, tights. Yeah. <laughs> Freckles keep moving. And she's got the curly hair, <laughs> too, already. True. Right. Like, which, can we just stick to one? <laughs> curly or Freckles? Which one you want? Uh, but they pulled it off. They did. So, the, okay. So let's let's switch gears and talk about the opposition, right? The, the mayor, as it were. You know, where do you sort of fall into this? Because a lot of times we talk about if the villain's not strong enough, it doesn't work. I felt uh, as villainous as he was, there was some humility to him. Or you, you understood where he was coming from. It wasn't just this tyrant for the sake of being a tyrant. Yeah. I, I honestly thought his change of character, quote unquote, in the end when he finally came back around was way too quick. It was resolved way too quick and didn't feel like it was earned with his character because, yeah, he had a moment where he realized that, uh, you know, um, his his nephew mm-hmm. uh, really liked the, the dog. He's like, I'm a terrible human being. Yeah, you are. Um, but, like, d- taking away the decree within 10 seconds of your realization, just it was too 
quickly resolved that didn't feel earned. Right. I felt he he symbolized, and again, without knowing much of the culture, so I, I don't mean to be offensive. I don't want to offend anybody, but he did. Well, luckily, Mega this, City is not a real city. Well, this is true, but he had this uh, nobility about him so that everything that he believed in, he believed was right, and he was doing it for the city, even though it was under corrupt guys. Um, listen, I'm actually sort of glad that they had. I didn't know which way they were going to go with that character, if they were going to keep him mean or if he was ever going to find any type of sensitivity towards Atari and and this situation that was uh that that, that was made up in a sense. So I you know I I liked the turn. Yeah, probably it's less earned than say Chief. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um uh, a couple of things I did like that how the character itself is modeled after and Toshiro Mifune sort of resembles him, but his name is Kobayashi. So to me, my instant goes to the Kobayashi Maru from from Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> that, that, that's the test. And his name was Kobayashi. I thought he was greatly voiced. Um, and he's the one that gave him the dog in the first place, right? Uh, when yeah, it wasn't necessarily awesome. love. It was yeah, just, it was more like, I'm giving know. you a dog so I don't have to take care so of it. So I know, <laughs> but he started this all. Um, and at the end... They could have made him far more villainous, uh, villainous and dastardly. Um, they certainly set him up in that way. I mean, yes, his the, the way everything was shot in terms of the podium, his height, the angles. Uh, they they were very cognizant to make him almost like an Italian, almost like yeah. Kane, yeah. Mussolini, right. <laughs> right. or even dare I say Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, was, he was a dictator for sure. Definitely. Like, they're, they're, like they made that. A tyrannical that, that dictator. Tyrannical dictator. There was no argument. Like, he's the bad guy. And just, you know, I, I don't I don't know the language. However, I'm sure, you know, when you talk about performance, even though I didn't understand the words, it, it, it seemed very methodical of what he was saying. And now, luckily, we did have the interpreter every now and then so she could translate what was said. And it was just very to the point and so you know you you got the different personalities even if you didn't understand the language because mm-hmm. there was other scenes where we didn't get the interpreter and you just had to go off of facial expression and intonation and so forth so mm-hmm. i thought I, that actually worked really well overall i felt so I, you know I, I felt the same way it was interesting because i would wonder okay how is this going to play like over there they don't have to necessarily interpret obviously what are they going to do for the dogs? Well, they got to interpret so, from English. Yeah, to- yeah. So it, it was, um, it, to your point, it was a great use of, of of sound, in a sense. Because we could get the character from from a lilt in the voice to an inflection on a word, the expressions that were used. Um, I didn't understand a word that, that was going on, but it didn't keep me any less riveted. Like, I, I you could piece together... What might be being discussed without under quite understanding? There's a great pantomime in a sense that that we have to understand as a, as an American audience. It's very very risky thing to do, not to put. I mean, it, not to put some semblance of subtitles there, and how to do it because 
there were many a time where there was just no translation going on at all. And to me, that's risky. And Wes Anderson said, I, I really don't like subtitles and I don't want people reading my movie when they could be seeing watching. something and watching. And I think it's a great respect to the artists who put this together that I'm not I'm paying attention to the artistry that's taking place on screen. What I liked about like the the use of media, it's also still very relevant Mm -hmm. as well, and and how I liked it did like not to go into the production aspect, but how the the news and when we were getting the information from you know every time Kobayashi was on screen or something, how it would seamlessly cut from Kobayashi to like a two D animation of to the TVs when you're seeing it like in black and white. I thought that was like very well smoothly transitioned from one to another in the different forms of media. I thought yeah. visually that was very well done. And, and from utilizing the media, having Francis McDormand as our narrator in the times and how that character, Interpreter, interpreter Nelson, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that too. Um, and how it was brought up because she's not in the entire movie. But at the movie in which West Ab- uh, Wes Anderson and the collaborators felt these are important parts, and we need an interpreter utilizing the media. Uh, also, to, to some levity to, yeah. with the media Absolutely. as well, like because she would add her own commentary at the end, yeah. like "What a night!" You know, <laughs> so like, stuff like that. Also yeah. funny. Also well, funny. Th- th- that was the layer as far as when you guys talk about the media of. There's the moments where they are portraying a character for the media and getting out what you can call propaganda, you can call it messaging, whatever you want. But then when they're alone without the interpreter, well, then you're left to your own imagination, aren't you? So I I thought that, yeah, there's definitely, when we talk about the politics, I think there's definitely a side to it of how does media play into all of this. Right. And how does an audience interpretation when the media is not involved? And that, too, I think is important because it is how how an American audience or a foreign audience who doesn't understand Japanese is going to interpret what's happening with these characters. And you have to have a sense. And this is where I felt it was a really good setup because we get our, our hero, our protagonist, we get our dogs, we get who the villain is going to be. And they are singled out by their mannerisms or their puppetry and their voices. And so that's how, too, we can interpret. We can interpret when somebody's yelling at somebody. We can interpret if somebody's whispering that, that something covert is going on. And I think uh, they took uh, some, some great strides to allow an audience to make an interpretation that wouldn't be wrong. Yeah, yeah, but also there sense. were moments during the, the news sections and stuff where when we say there was an interpreter, they're not right. like spoon feeding us of how yeah. the viewers should feel mm-hmm. what's happening in the media. Because a lot of commentators are always telling you we should be angry that this is happening right. in you know, politics or X, Y, and Z. And there were moments when we didn't understand, we're like, oh, how does that make us feel? Right. That that leaves the audience to their own imagination sure. of what the reactions are mm-hmm. to what's happening in the world. I'd be very curious. I haven't, I haven't found any trivia like this, and I don't think that they did it. But if there was anything misinterpreted by the interpreter, mm. because part you know, I, I could say, um, you know, you can't inflection is tough to interpret. Like if you're just literally interpreting words, and if I say something sarcastically, mm-hmm. and the interpreter just says it verbatim, and the sarcasm is not picked up, then oh. 
whatever that may be, it, it's right. it's a misinterpreted. So you're not getting it from the source. Um, all right, let's shift gears and talk about Mega City, and uh, let's talk about it from the story perspective, and then we can certainly expand out to talk about um, the production side of things. But uh, very, very big in terms of scope. Um, what I appreciated, it, it, it brought in various elements that, that sort of we've been hinting at, the the gangster side of things. The you had, you know, the schools and all of this. It, it, it felt like a fully fleshed out, realized city, even though it was completely made up. Right. All right. Um, I like the city and and also the islands of dogs. Just the the two worlds were completely visually contrasting each other and, and i'm like i enjoy that because mega megasaka city looks pretty like japan usually it looks right. pretty um <laughs> and and i like that because it it showed how big the world is but how small-minded some of the people were right um and visually it was cool i like the color palette um i do like wes anderson the color palette in all of his films uh, so, like, I did, like, the two completely different worlds of ones being controlled by humans and the Isle of Dogs being controlled by dogs. So. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it brought to mind two other animated movies, which we talked at a great length there, and one of them was Coco, where we had the two worlds. And how do we differentiate the, the, the living world and the dead world? And there was the uh, Zootopia in creating this Zootopian world, uh, and and what what is this based on, and how painstaking it was to create trees, to yeah. create the environment create there, right? There. So for here, you are creating this uh, alternate reality. It is Japan, but how are we going to create this? And then we have to create the Isle of Dogs, and we have to give a geography. That was the other brilliant thing I felt about this movie is that I felt I knew which were I know where to go. In this, and that to me was just uh, it was it was really beautifully done to see it up on a big screen. It was really uh, you know he he uses his formatting. I thought was was brilliant, like whether it's flat and how it just util in in the way you say that he pans. Um, so we get the beauty of of of, of Japan, uh, and then we get the junkyard. Of uh, the actual Isle of Dogs, and it was set up very well. There were two distinct environments that within the, they, that created this world that we know doesn't exist, but yet it is rooted in some semblance of reality. We've seen junkyards or or, or, or trash uh, heaps. We've we've seen pictures of Japan if we've never been there before. So certainly Google will allow Google, us. Of course. <laughs> so and hence I felt that that added to like the realism of this completely fabricated, imaginated world. Well, as far as Trash Island, you could look at it from the standpoint of this uh, idealistic uh, viewpoint as far as what – sorry – I'm being sarcastic as far as it, so I'm trying to figure out the right terminology. But essentially, like, if, you know, homelessness as it increases throughout all of America, certainly in cities, uh, and I'm sure in the world, but I'm going to speak to uh, America in particular, in L.A. you have Skid Row, which is right next to some of the more richer parts of town. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, wouldn't it be idealistic if you could just take all that trash, uh, a.k.a. the homeless people, and put them on a trash island? 
or in fact, wouldn't it be it, and, and or just trash in general, like literal trash. And it's this idyllic view that we can just push away all the stuff that we don't want to be reminded of, right. and so forth. And I, I, as a metaphor, I thought that worked really well because of, you, you know we didn't get to this in the movie, but eventually, like Trash Island is going to get filled. <laughs> eventually, like when that runs out, what's going to happen? And you're not that far off, and no. Pollute your water and so forth. So I thought that was an interesting commentary that I I don't think um, they went too deep into it, but I I think it was there regardless. Yeah, I think the whole uh, like idea of Trash Island was to eventually just get off of it, and because they're they're stuck there, but the whole journey is to because you see in the movie throughout like the progression of where they are in the on the map like right. you see them getting closer and closer and closer to Megasaki and so you knew eventually they were going to get off the island and it's a place that we shouldn't be dwelling on too much I and mean, we don't care what happens to it uh, no i mean it's it's a dump it <laughs> literally it's a dump and uh how you get there is shitty Oh, you just dropped off. The survival is so like it's do- yeah, doggy well. dog world, pun intended. Um, so, and then where there's beauty, it's almost like Dunkirk, like that line in Dunkirk. It's like you could see it from here. What's that, sir? Home. <laughs> I mean, like Megasaki City's like right there, and we can't. And we, how do we get there? It. You can see it, uh, and that was visually well represented. Absolutely, in in all facets. When you talk about the geography, whether it's the foregrounds, the backgrounds, having an actual map, and so forth, that that worked really well. Mm-hmm. It was always off in the distance. Yep, but yet you couldn't touch it. Nope. Right. Just just like uh, uh, James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. He could yeah. see New York, but he, he couldn't get to it. Yep. I could see New York, but I can't get to it either. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Um, any other story elements that you guys want to talk about before we shift back into the production side of things again? No? Nah, I think we covered it. Yeah. All right. So let, let's, let's get into it. Um, so let's... I, one of the reasons I chose to talk about the city is because, from the story perspective, but now as we shift into the um, the production perspective, overall, the amount of construction that it took to create this city, and yet not as heavily used as one would imagine. Right. There's an old joke, and I think it's, uh, you, for those of you smart enough, and you guys, if you guys are watching Wes Anderson, I believe you guys are smart enough. Um, the the queen had to visit uh, a site of construction. Well, of course, you're not going to have the queen use the porta potty that all the work, construction and workers are using. So they had to erect the porta potty specifically for the queen. She comes, she goes, and they're like, "Wait, do you want to use the porta potty?" No. And then she leaves. So it's kind of like that. Like they constructed this thing simply because they had to. And should we shoot this more? No, no. don't need to. <laughs> nope. So, um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I think when we talked when we talked about it from the story perspective, it, if it didn't have, you know, even even just that kind of the few shots that we do see of it in the in the grandeur that we're talking about it, none of it works, right? No, so, and it is that subtlety of knowing how to use it and not overuse it that Anderson is quite good at. No, so I appreciate that. Take a guess if if we if you're or if you if you have the number fine, but set wise, right? 
How many did they have to create? I don't know the sets, but I do know the skyscraper count. Okay, what's the skyscraper count? 150 scale. A lot of skyscrapers. <laughs> yep. 150 skyscrapers put within 240 eye-catching sets. 240. Granted, they're miniature. But again, this is what that's I, a lot of time. It's a lot of time. You need model makers to do this. You got to do it in such a scale and with your camera. Can and then you're just designing it alone. Yeah. yeah right. You got to come up with 240 ideas. And 150 skyscrapers. And then trash heaps. <laughs> and then a roller coaster or like a gondola. Like that scene was really funny too. The amusement park. That was That's like, such a sad amusement. That, my God, yeah. There was no fun in that one, <laughs> except for a giant slide. The slide, yeah, they enjoyed the slide. Yeah, the kid enjoyed the slide. And now. I think that was like something that kids could enjoy because, yeah. like, even as, you know, worn down as that slide was, he still liked it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that kids like two foot slides at the playground, I think, speaks to that idea of like, I would never enjoy a two foot slide. And just being that rebellious kid, like, you have to be this height. And he's right, like, no, right, I'm right, still right, going to do right. it. <laughs> yeah. The real fact that they had that in the movie, you have to be this height to get into the ride, I was like, that's funny. He's like, well, no one's yeah, here no to one's stop here. me. <laughs> Why not? Um, getting, okay, so speaking of Trash Island, right? Uh, th- there's been comparisons made to Wally specifically, as far as certainly the cubes and so forth. And um, I don't necessarily. Get down on them for borrowing from Wally if they did or did not. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but since it's not the story that they're trying to tell, Wally's a completely different story. So I don't mind them using that visual language just to set the tone of, okay, you've seen this, you know it, great, it's trash. Right. I get it. And also, the, the trash heaps in Wally also had personality to it, mm-hmm. too. Like, it, it established the first 20 minutes of that film. Absolutely. And I think. Trash Island in this film was clearly established. It's not a place you you enjoy. It's somewhere they got stuck, you know, and it it had its own look as well. Yeah, it was a dumping ground for a reason. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're putting our problem, our made-up problem. We're hiding it in the trash heaps. Set it and forget it. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the dogs, as far as production, Wes actually did a lot of the facial expressions for the dogs which is interesting uh because not that i'm aware of but on the credits i don't see him you know when we talk about who did chief we did that yes the, we talked about the voice acting but um the the puppeteering itself um i don't even know though that's the word because he's not necessarily puppeteering it he's just providing the face the face uh, which i thought model. was rather interesting He'd probably say facial model facial model Something along those lines. And this is how to animate. And yeah, that is funny. Again, painstaking. If he was doing it for every dog. Oh, they, there was so many dogs. That's true. And I think it did a good job because with all the dogs, they all had their own different personalities. Yeah. So he did a good <clears> job. <throat> Maybe he just did it in between shots. He was just so bored. He's like, hey, why don't, why don't, why don't I do it and then you film it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, to me, you know, when you talk about movie making, I honestly, I appreciate what Wes Anderson did, but it's just tough for me to imagine what that, it's still to this day, no matter how many behind the scenes things I see, 
what a director does on a stop at. And and let's talk about too. So there are a thousand creaturely puppets were handmade. Okay, five hundred dogs because you just said there was so many dogs. <laughs> right, it's five hundred dogs. 500 humans for each individual character, a range of puppets was made in five different scales. So you had an oversized, large, medium, small, extra small. Each main or hero puppet took about 16 weeks to build. <laughs> 16. So no wonder why it takes like a, a long time. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this too, I think makes it a um, Makes an appreciation for a Henry Selick. Look, Nightmare Before Christmas, James the Giant Peach. Tim Burton himself has has his following. Tim Burton has always used um, stop motion animation, whether it be Pee Wee, uh, whether it be Sleepy Hollow, uh, and then producing Nightmare Before Christmas. But that's a lot, a lot, a lot. That a thousand puppets made up. Uh, you know, and then zeroing down on who your hero puppet's going to be. That's a very long time, you know. So three I, I years mean, makes perfect sense. It's actually, to me, it's I'm surprised at how quick it is, to be honest with you. Really? For what they accomplished and the level of detail? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Quite frankly. Was, well, I, again, and only from... Uh, doing a box trolls and learning it's still like if this was back in the nightmare before christmas days to make this movie it would have taken a decade mm. back then technology so technology has helped but still we are still we're st- we're talking years instead of months for production yeah. so that takes a long time that and that's very fastidious i'm not sure Oh, I know I just don't have the concentration to work on something so small. Right. Like, can you imagine? I mean, I already have bad eyesight. Yeah, but it's also miserable. in fairness to, like, Nightmare Before Christmas, you had different characters singing, too, which, like, it was a mu- there was a musical element to it, so there's more motion, there's more colors and stuff. Kubo had so much in it, yes. and that took them a long time. So I think, like... Yes, this was a fairly straightforward story. There's no music and like right. co- like musical elements involved, except for maybe you know the drums at the beginning and the middle. There's no like over the top numbers where there's millions upon millions of, of emotions. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it really depends on like what the actual story is, yeah. depicting how long it'll take them. Yeah, one day. And this movie wasn't without its, uh, for lack of set pieces, you know, the amusement park, that other factory that we're going through. A broken uh, down compactor. <laughs> yeah. So, and and uh, water, trying to get over to the mainland, so to speak. So this movie had its, its, its set pieces and its complexity. Uh and again, just something else that that you, you need to appreciate. And fortunately, at least for me, it, it was a good story. This was all but a tool in an environment. So, because if the story sucked, we really the only thing we could hang our hat on here, I think, as panelists, is how it was made. Never. Right? If the story was miserable, all we could really talk about, because then we'd be talking about how ugh, all this time and they wasted it on this kind of a story. All right. So. 
Well, we could applaud it, and, and what would make it even more ironic is that this is the longest stop motion film of all time, beating out Coraline by two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I, I, you know, I mean, I'm that's trying to think what the runtime of this was. was about an hour and 40. Yeah, it was, was it? it was fairly short. Yeah. I mean, fairly short, but, you know, I look at him like, holy moly. Before, you have patience yeah. as, patience AF for days. Yeah. <laughs> but what they accomplished in... A short amount of time right. is what matters. And I like Coraline. Coraline's a Coraline's great movie. movie. I, I love that movie. I, they're really, Coraline's to be honest... also dark. Like, yes. mo- a lot of... They can hide a lot of it in darkness. Yes. And at night, so... Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've... Truthfully, I haven't seen a stop-motion film that I haven't yet liked. So, you know what? If you want to be a good friend, in the comments section, don't be a... Don't be a D-bag. But give me suggestions of stop motion movies or even TV shows that you guys have appreciated and liked and I'll be happy to watch them. I'm a big mm-hmm. Wallace and Gromit fan. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Gromit? Yeah. Curse of the Were Bunny? <laughs> Is that it? The Were Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen that stuff. <laughs> that stuff's great. Again, all st- I mean, Ardman, is, a, is that's, that's, he's made a career out of that. Uh, there, There's one, was it just out or was it coming out? I think it's I think maybe it's on on demand. Early Man wasn't that Chicken oh, yeah. Run? Yeah, Early Man's like coming out this year, right? Uh, chicken if Run, it, yeah. So I mean, there's been a lot that 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 has been out there. Um, and again, I just think that animation just lends itself to creating worlds that we can get immersed in because they look the same but very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you couple it with a fun story. Um, you know th- th- that's how animation really works. Whether it's whether it's Beauty and the Beast as an animated movie, uh, or, or or I Love Dogs, or whether it's anime. Look, there, there are a ton of anime fans out there. So Akira, Ghost in the Shell, and even much deeper. Uh, I'm not so well versed in that world. I, I know enough, but that has been around forever. So animation does take us into different worlds and presents and can take a social issue and turn it on its heels, much like very good science fiction will do. So it offers a, a new perspective on things. Yeah, and I, w- I would be curious to know from from you at home watching or listening to to see what you drew out thematically from this movie in particular. Uh, very, very curious about that. Um, all right. I think Marissa and I, we didn't hear from you, but Marissa and I are on the same page. (laughs) You know, and that's where I found this movie to be very topical, referential, Mm -hmm. um, and clever because to me, it's sort of, it didn't have to beat you over the head. And if you didn't want to pay attention to that, you could still enjoy the movie, but it was there in front of you. Yeah. I mean, the, the satire was quite evident to me and I appreciate it. And I could laugh. One of the things I appreciated was you could laugh at the jokes on on the surface level, but if you really got the deeper meaning of it, uh, there's definitely moments where you're like kind of laughing, and then ha ha, oh yeah, it was I not so funny but funny, yeah, Um, indeed. All right, so what you know, we've been talking a lot about Alex. uh, We've been talking a lot about Wes Anderson, but another man we've talked a lot about in the past and who deserves credit rightfully again alexander desplat who's he (laughs) (laughs) we love him uh he composed this movie and you know oftentimes music just kind of serves a movie 
And sometimes we we talk about like it just get kind of, it, it was good, but it wasn't memorable. This was sure it served the movie and it was quite memorable. Yeah, and it served the environments for which we were in. Right. I really liked the music. The the music oh. at the beginning when we had all the drums during the the yep. whole credits. I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, the in the music throughout, especially when they were fighting and how we went from like island to the uh, and even the music during the the news montages and right. stuff i think was really cool but i think the one song i didn't like was the one that they used for the the trailer um it was really slow i i won't hurt you by yeah. west west coast pop art yeah, experimental i personally band. did not like it because it sounded so different from everything right. we've just been hearing it sounded that sounded more american than the Japanese culture that we've been listening to the, mm-hmm. the whole time. And I think I just seen the trailer so many times I got sick of the song. <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, it's It sounded out of place compared to what we were listening to the, right. the entire film. But overall, Desplat is a genius. Yeah, and again, it's something different for him. He serves up something different. And again, I feel that in this movie, the music served its environment very well. It, um Helped move the story forward, but then when we had the interstitials, like having those mm-hmm. drums, having what we just heard, I think just animated the movie. It set the uh, literal pace. Absolutely, right. it did. You know, absolutely. Each, you know, drums is meant as a way of keeping rhythm, and you go faster, you go slower. <laughs> well, that's literally sure, what the sure. movie did. Absolutely. It either sped up or slowed down. And, uh, and it bookended the movie, too. We started true. it, and we heard the same drums at the end. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, overall. I, and I say, again, uh, let's let's just say it here that even though this movie came out in March, technically, right? March 23rd. March 23rd. Uh, there's no reason why Alexander Desplat can't be remembered Come award time for his work on this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. who knows? He does such great work. He might he might come up with something else. Yeah, you're right. Who he, knows? He could be working on another twelve movies that are coming out this year alone. <laughs> yeah, right. So we'll see. You pick your poison type of thing. Except uh, I don't know what the opposite of poison in this case would be. Um, I, and yeah, I mean, th- this is one of those movies that slowly has gotten more and more recognition. It was at the Berlin Film Festival, and he won for Best Director. You know, it started off in limited release, and slowly it grew. Now it's in wider release. Uh, certainly not like a Black Panther type of release, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's it's making back. I, I, I haven't, unless you have the budget, I haven't been able to find the budget. I haven't been able to find it. They've kept that really tightly under wraps. All I can, uh, well, what I did find is, and I found this to be, I found it to be very entertaining. This is his highest, of a platform release movie, this is his highest grossing, like when it opened up in 12 theaters. He had the highest per screen average of any of his previous other works. Um, I also found it very interesting that that opening weekend, that a breakdown of the audience, it was 60% was under 30. Under 30, 60% of this movie. So that, to me, I found to be very interesting as well. Um, While I was watching the movie, I was like, geez, if a parent accidentally took their kid to this movie, number one, I'm not sure 
a kid would yeah, find you know. this movie to be because it's not like it's so colorful and vivacious and it had like that Coco like Coco is very heady too but at least if you're a kid where you may not understand everything it had happening, music it had music right I don't think a kid would also take away the political commentary oh absolutely not and to me first time I can say that I was probably grossed out in a stop animated uh, stop motion animated movie and that's when they were doing the kidney transplant the the operation oh yeah that like, grossed oh, you out it's sort of kind of because I didn't expect to see like up oh, they're cutting it up and oh. I was like wow okay <laughs> that that I watched too much for. ER in Grey's Anatomy I guess so I guess I'm so desensitized to it I just don't <laughs> expect to see it in a stop motion animated what actually movie. grossed me out more was the the moment Chief like threw her up I'm like oh <laughs> And, and like they moved on, and, the, and they're eating like all all the right. the nasty food at the beginning. Yeah, it's worth fighting for. Yeah. Like, ew, ew. <laughs> that was more gross to me. But, yeah, I was yeah. just surprised of the blood well, that they showed it uh, in stop motion, in. and I could just see a parent going, "Oh, oh my god!" Yeah. <laughs> well, it hurt the eyes. <laughs> well, it was interesting. They did. Some theaters had dog screenings, so. People were able to bring in their pets. Obviously, you have to pay admission for the pet as well. But nonetheless, they they, they brought dogs. Now, uh, sure, cute and fun. That is not <laughs> a theater I'd want to be. I know my dog, and he just wouldn't sit still. Like he might, but there would yeah, be too much it's... distraction. Forget about the screen. There, all the other dogs hmm. in that in in the theater. He'd be like, oh, "What? Let go of me! I want to play." <laughs> Yeah, so how, I, I I haven't uh, seen how successful that venture's been. I have not heard of other things. So based on that, I think we know the answer. Uh, yeah. Another interesting part that we didn't talk about that I want to mention before we wrap out was that there was a competition for someone to be a member of the voice cast in this film. The only requirement was that you donated $10 to the Film Foundation, uh, which preserves the restoration and preservation of film around the world. So I thought that was... It's a cool little um, tidbit and Absolutely. a way to, way to use your platform as far as being, you know, Wes Anderson. Sure. It's like also, just give back to your art. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we were talking about it's, it's, it's gross, which worldwide it's $30 million. So uh, domestically it's, let's just say, $21 million thus far. And that's been 68.9% of the gross. Understandably, 31 Point one percent is is of foreign interest, so and it's still opening up in in, in foreign territories as well. Um, it it'll be interesting, you know, as the weeks go on to see how how it goes. But I, I believe it was a ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. which is a good number right there. Um, so yeah, it, it it opened up well for a Wes Anderson film. I think that you. You know, you sort of kind of might have a ceiling for certain West and for for Wes Anderson movies. There are many people who are who are you know a lot of people don't care for that style, whether it be in stop motion animation or whether it be Moonrise Kingdom or or they they just don't appreciate you know they don't like him much like some people don't like certain directors, regardless. But there could be a cap. But um, this one is definitely, I think. Again, you have to get out of the thought that animation is only for families and kids. 
And this, to me, is is an animated movie that's not necessarily meant for an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. No, know? absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. All right, Marissa, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Overall, uh, for Wes Anderson film, uh, I did overall in- enjoy this film more than I thought it was going to. So, And I think it's it's a good feel good movie and i'm like and i appreciate feel good movies so i think if you love dogs you like feel good movies go watch this what's the other thing too it had a really good fine appreciation for pets you can tell that everybody involved is an animal lover um and i found that you know as respectful if it was to society to the society and the culture it was very respectful to the animals as well so, yeah, I appreciated this movie. I had a really good time watching it. I might have liked it a little bit better than than I thought. And again, it's it's, you know, it's the the medium of cinema which can bring us fantastic worlds regardless of whether it's live action and how animation brought this world to life. I very much appreciated the artistry involved. So, yeah. yeah. I did too. I thought uh really really good story overall. Um, a lot of fun with it. So kudos to everyone involved. And yeah, I'm looking forward to more. All right. So that does it for us. Uh, we've got next week. It's a light week this week. So unless Dimitri and Marissa fight me on it, it looks like we'll be doing Super Troopers too. And I feel pretty. <laughs> I would love to be a part of it. I will be, uh, unfortunately, I will be at CinemaCon in Las Vegas. Uh, Look at so, you. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll tweet. Feeling all pretty I, by yourself. I'll be, it's usually, that's, you just described my life right now in a nutshell. <laughs> Feeling pretty all by myself. I'm a legend in my own, I'm pretty in my own mind. So, Super Troopers 2 I want to see. I like the first one. Yeah, yeah. we'll go see this it. This really funny. Yeah. In the meantime, where can uh, people interact with you, Dimitri, so that you don't feel so alone? <laughs> At DMovies1701. There's been so much to tweet about. New Halloween teaser poster came out this week. I was very excited. Extremely excited about that one. So at DMovies1701, I'll try to send some tweets uh, from CinemaCon. It's a great place where they show what's coming up. All the studios do these huge presentations and get a sneak peek to the year ahead. Exactly. Can't wait to hear all about it. Marissa. Uh, Everyone can follow me at Serafini TV. (laughs) And follow me here at Tech, And check out my website if you like for more work. We appreciate you guys. Uh, We've done a lot of animated movies that we've talked about in the past. Stop motion and otherwise. So definitely check that out. And the movies that were translated from animated to live action. We've done Box Trolls. We've done Box Trolls. We've done Kubo. I We've even done Nightmare Before we Christmas. We most certainly did. Yeah. We've done it. God, so many years ago. Yeah. We've done so, so it. much. Done so many. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys, as always. Check out more, more movies of ours uh, in the past, in the future. And uh, you know what? I'll say it right now. Start promoting us for our Infinity Wars podcast. That's going to be a big one. Uh, we're going to try to invite some people to be a part of it. That's going to be the only movie that we do this week, that week, because there's going to be so much to talk about. So, until next time, bye. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.